0: Tune to WBAI New York listener sponsored radio. Time is 108. The preceding program supports you live with portions on recording. We hear next Primary Sources with
1: Peter Wilson. Please do stay tuned. sources. You're listening to WBAI in New York, and I am not James Ursay. I'm Peter Lamborn Wilson. I'm sitting in for James this summer, and all you fans of James out there will be glad to hear that at least I know he's still alive. I still haven't uh, received any tapes or letters or anything from him, but I did call up his uh, mother the other day just to find out whether she'd heard from him, and she has, and he he was in, uh, I think, uh, Tel Aviv when uh, she spoke to him and he was um involved in getting a press pass i don't know exactly why that's so that's the only news i've had so far i uh, i hope that he's that he will soon be in touch with us and have some exciting news from the holes in the holy land that he's been digging away in uh well let's see now what am i going to do tonight i guess i'm going to start off by describing my mail as usual i didn't get any uh uh, letters here from Jamesian listeners, but I uh, did. I am still receiving a lot of nice responses to the uh, astral convention idea. Got another dozen or so letters as a result of. Uh, I think probably all from you people uh, in the past week, and um, I'll be sending out. Uh, I should say, the Association for Ontological Anarchy will be sending out the appropriate uh, material. Um, don't worry, you'll get it in plenty of time. And I'll be talking about it again on this program before we uh, have the event. Uh, oh, and another thing. Um, some of you out there still, still have not uh, uh, paid your pledges from the last marathon. There was another note in, the, uh, in James's mailbox tonight about that. So please, please, if you, uh, if, you, if you love us, or even if you just sort of vaguely like us, pay up. Uh, because um, otherwise the station is in big trouble. If people pledge uh, s- uh, subscriptions and then don't don't come through with the money, this is like a major disaster for the station. And I know you wouldn't want to lose the uh, this oasis on the FM band, which is WBAI. This uh, this um, spot of intelligence in the in the wasteland of blah that constitutes most American radio, with the exception, of course, of our uh, our friendly station WFMU over there in New Jersey, and I have a guest tonight, Dave from WFMU. My, uh, the, uh, you, you may remember some weeks ago, I said that Dave and I were involved in a sinning contest, and the score is still love all. We neither one of us have committed any great sins so far. Are you, is your is your mic live, Dave? I don't think so. Oh, okay.
0: Two,
1: um, anyway, he's here. He's sitting in. Maybe,
0: How about
1: this? Can you hear me now? <laughs> maybe when, uh, when, when Sidney Smith, my, uh, en- my engineer, my pro-tem engineer, who, uh, who's uh, luckily sacrificing himself to uh, help me do this show because even though I got my broadcaster's license, I am, uh, in fact, quite inept when it comes to uh, machinery. And, uh, but Sydney's not in the room right now, so we'll wait till he comes back. And uh, while uh, while we're doing that, I got a few more zines in the mail this week, which I'll share with you. Um, if you weren't, if you haven't been around for the past couple of weeks, I've been discussing what I like to call American samizdat, or self-publishing, what used to be called the amateur press, and uh, which I consider to be the the absolute. Uh, avant-garde of the avant-garde and the thin edge of the wedge of, of interesting American publishing these days, um, because it's totally non-commercial, because it's totally outside of the commodity world, and um, because this is where the real the real excitement, for me anyway, in American literature is going on. Oh, there. No, I, think hey, I, think, I think you're on now. I think
0: I'm here. <laughs>
1: All right. You solved the problem. Will I get in trouble if uh, they All found out you.
0: that I turned these knobs by myself?
1: <laughs> yeah, right. The uh, the union organizer will come in here and string you up. Whoops. <laughs> Dave and I both happen to know the guy who's doing union organizing for uh, WBAI. He's a dear friend of ours. Uh, let's see. What did I get? I got one called Life of Crime, which I'm uh, happy to mention because it... Uh, It's a New York production, and in fact, it's even an Upper West Side production. I don't know any of these people who are involved in it, and I don't know exactly why they sent it to me. Perhaps they actually uh, have been listening to the show. The uh, editor is Alyssa J. Rashkin. And you can write to uh, uh, Life of Crime, Care of Rashkin, Box 20375, New York, 10025. And uh, it's a small one. Um, but this is the first issue. They, they say they will have more. I see, just skimming through here, I see uh, a few quotes from Donny the Punk, who's a famous uh, New York xenoid whom I've met a couple times. Uh, what else is in here?
0: I've never actually met him. I've seen, I've seen some of his. He's not stuff, very but
1: punk-looking, actually. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he, he's a pretty, rather ordinary-looking chap, but. uh... He writes a lot about punk anarchism and prisons and things like that. He's I even punk- found out
0: his real name recently. It wasn't a very punk oh, name maybe either. Maybe we better not say no, it. No, no, He might not want people oh, no, to know. Oh, no. Never.
1: Uh, I got one. Bob Black sent me this one. Callisti Comics. K-A-L-L-I-S-T-I-K-O-M-I-K-S. Um... We were talking about it earlier, and we noticed that it 's almost professional looking and that for some reason this makes it kind of less interesting to us than the uh, the really sloppy uh, extemporaneous uh, Xerox mutation stuff. This one looks like it 's been done on a good word processor and it's got a careful layout and it's on slick paper, but it 's still a zine, and you can tell that the uh, I think the overall tendency is what I would call Erisian um, with some uh, possibly post Alistair Crowley uh, occultism mixed in and a lot of humor, uh, some funny comic strips. And this one comes from uh, Cincinnati, Callisti Comics, Box 19566, Cincinnati, Ohio 45219. Um, some of the articles in here. Uh, well, report from the ashram that was pretty funny. On, um, I know that Cincinnati for some odd reason seems to be a hot spot for for American occultism. I know there's some other groups out there too. I, I wonder why that could wonder why that is. I've never been there, so I have no hmm. first-hand opinions. There's a review of a book, uh, A Kabbalah for the Modern World, by Miguel Gonzalez Whipler. Uh, an, an author that I've come across a couple times because she writes about Santeria, the uh, Afro-Cuban cult, which is big in New York here, with especially with uh, Dominicans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, which is partly based on the Yoruba religion, partly based on Catholicism, and it's especially a very popular religion where I live, up, up on the Upper West Side, and uh, they have all these... Um, shops where you can go in and buy magical equipment. They're called botanicas, which actually means uh, flower shop or herb shop, because their primary purpose is to sell fresh and dried herbs for various magical purposes. But you can also get uh, some really great uh, popular religious artwork. Um, You can get your stock up on uh, candles and incense and all that sort of stuff. The Upper West Side is full of these shops, and I've been a kind of Santeria fan for many years. I enjoy it, and whenever I hear about any Concerts of Santeria music. I try to go because uh, it's always extremely exciting. Uh, usually, it, in, it involves people falling into trances and um, doing things which uh, sometimes look physically impossible. Various kinds of dancing and drumming. The drumming is spectacular. It's uh, the drumming is probably the most for most of the practitioners, I guess, except for the really the real high initiates, the music would be the closest contact with genuine, what you might call genuine Yoruba tradition, because the each one of the orishas or, or gods has a different drum beat, and uh, can be called into, well, be called down to possess uh, the worshipper if the right drum beat is played. And some of, these, uh, some of the drumming, of course, in, in true African style is amazingly complex and uh, always very exciting. And, and you can also get a, a nice uh, idea of how that tradition has fed into Afro-Cuban music which, uh, and jazz and so forth. A lot of the spirit, uh, a lot of, the spirit of, of Santeria finds its way into even quite popular uh, Latin American music. And many of the uh, big performers are, in fact, initiates. Um... I uh, I like it because it, amongst all of these, um, amongst all of the neo pagan religions as you might call them, uh, like Wicca and so forth, I've just been reading uh, Margot Adler's uh, Drawing Down the Moon. You know, Margot is of course a, a great old B A I character, and she's written a wonderful book about uh, about uh, Wicca, witchcraft, and neo paganism in America, especially in America, with an amazing, believe me, an amazing list of uh, of publications and groups to get in touch with. So if you're an enthusiast for uh, uh, neo-pagan networking, you should absolutely get hold of Margot's book. But this is all, I don't want to be, I don't want put, to put down neo-paganism because I'm very fond of it, but as much as you might like it or dislike it, it's, uh, you, you, whether you're pro or con, you would still have to admit that it's, it's all pretty much a 20th century phenomenon. And what what I particularly enjoy about Santeria and also about Candomblé and uh, uh, Umbanda and some of the more some of the South American Yoruba-related religions and also about Haitian Voodoo, is that it's a neo-paganism alive today right here in the city, which is uh, not only authentic, authentically traditional in the sense that it preserves very ancient African material. It's also very up-to-date and New World, and uh, they have, uh, for example, uh, American Indian figures in their pantheon. And Black Slave, uh, uh, f- uh, there's a, f- a famous figure, you can see him often in the Botanica shops, called the Old Black Slave, who's a very powerful orisha, as they call. These It would be incorrect to translate orisha as god, by, or, or goddess, by the way, because all of the orishas, as I understand it, were at one time human beings, and have now and after their life on earth were sort of taken up. So it might, in terms of western neopagan, in terms of western paganism, it might be more correct to call them demigods like Hercules. In fact, uh, Hercules might, might very well be uh, considered uh, the same as the god Chango, who is sometimes called Chango Macho, the god of uh, warfare and iron and, uh, and uh, hot times in general. Um, I know that uh, from time to time the Santeria people in New York have trouble with uh, the man because they, one of the things that they do is animal sacrifice. And you've probably heard all kinds of uh, stories that made your, f- your flesh creep, if you read the New York Post and so forth, about headless chickens being found in Central Park and all this kind of stuff, as if that was any more shocking than what uh, you know Colonel Perdue does every day. Um, as far as i 'm concerned, if animal sacrifice is part of somebody's uh, cult and they want to do it, they should certainly have a right to do it they uh, i can 't see that it's there's something terribly sentimental about the whole anglo american approach to uh to this uh, to this subject i i 'm as much against factory farming and uh, uh you know chicken torture and so forth as anybody but i can't put this in the same category and i also i am always filled with resentment on behalf of the people of my neighborhood when I see some movie or TV show come out where once again the villain turns out to be the member of some sinister Caribbean cult or Haitian cult or something and uh, you know it's all part of the syndrome that I call the evil poor in America that just because if you're poor you must be bad uh, and if, if, you're not, uh, if you're not Christian clearly you must be a Satanist and so forth and so on. This is a, a religion. I, I want. I don't even want to say it's a religion like any other religion, because to me, it's extremely pro-life. It's extremely. Uh, it's a very integral, folkloric, living, uh, tradition, with that ranges all the way from yes, black magic. Black magic is part of it, but it also ranges all the way up to. Um, Spirituality that would uh, that that would certainly not put any Oriental uh, uh, wise man to shame. Um, years ago in Iran, I, I uh, at the Shiraz Festival of Arts, there was a group from Brazil, where this U- the Yoruba religion there is called Candomblé, and it's very similar. It has some Catholic input and so forth. And um, after the performance, which was very uh, Dramatic and included biting the head off a chicken in front of a whole lot of bourgeois people from Tehran who, believe me, were quite shocked. Uh, I this for some reason doesn't disturb me. Uh, it's it's just another ritual, as I said a couple of weeks ago. I've seen these Kurdish dervishes sticking skewers through their cheeks and chewing up razor blades. So really, biting the head off a chicken is not much compared to that. Anyway, I went up to the uh, this anthropologist, Brazilian anthropologist woman who was sort of manager of the troupe. And I asked her whether there, whether there was not a, high, a circle of high initiates in Candomblé who were using this kind of magic and this kind of possession for purely, for purposes of gnosis. And she said, what? How did you know? That's supposed to be a secret. No one's supposed to know that. And I said, I didn't know that. I just guessed it because on the basis of the art that you've just presented, which is to me terribly moving and authentic... Uh, it was quite clear to me that there must be a very uh, austere and 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 highly intellectual, spiritual tradition behind it. And she said, "Yes, they're the circles of the old men and women who, who uh, use uh, possession sh- solely in order to gain spiritual knowledge and not to, uh, not for material gain." And I'm convinced. I'm quite sure from my reading and from my uh, uh, my own personal experience that the same is true of Santeria. And that the same is true of uh, voodoo. And uh, if you don't believe me uh, on voodoo, I would certainly recommend the fabulous, fabulous book by Maya Darren, the uh, old uh, avant-garde filmmaker from the 50s who went to Haiti, I think in the late 50s, um, to do a little film on voodoo without really understanding what she was getting into and uh, got completely wrapped up in it to the extent where she eventually was herself possessed by Erzuli, the goddess of love, the sort of Venus of the voodoo pantheon. And her book, which is sometimes called Divine Horsemen, and I think that's the original title, and then there was a a reprint under the title Gods of Voodoo. And uh, it's one of the most uh, extraordinarily moving books I've ever read. And then, of course, there was this new book that came out called The Jaguar and the Serpent by this uh, Harvard ethnobotanist who claims to have uh, discovered what zombies are in, in actuality and has actually, actually met some genuine zombies in, in Haiti and did a whole number on uh, analyzing the, uh, the various, uh, uh, well, it turned out to be, mag- the magic potions actually turned out to be drugs and he found that, for example, datura was involved and also puff fish poison, which, as you may or may not know, kills thousands of people in Japan every year where people eat uh, puff fish sushi. And sometimes a little bit of this poison gets into the sushi, and uh, it's like, you know, it's like a gourmet Russian roulette. But uh, anyway, it turns out that these uh, the puff fish um, poison used in conjunction with certain other things like Datura, produces a, a state of, uh, what's it called, catalepsy, where, where the person appears to be dead, and then they bury them, and then they dig them up three days later when they're just finally coming to, and they say, haha, you're a zombie. And if you've been brought up to believe in zombies, you're a zombie. And this guy, what is his name? Anyway, it's called The Jaguar and the Serpent. I don't remember the author's name, but it's a very exciting book, kind of in the vein of Castaneda. Um, but more scientific, I think, and uh, it's a little disappointing at the end because you realize that he's gotten to the point where the only way he can prove his thesis is by paying to have a zombie made, and he's met some black magicians who would be willing to do this for him. You see, usually what the story is is that people who are turned into zombies or it's it's not just it's not like the old Hollywood movies it's not just done to get cheap labor or something. This is a punishment for people who have broken the code of voodoo in some way or another, or who have, who have uh, committed sins against the community or crimes against the community, which the, well, you know, usually very corrupt Haitian government is not prepared to deal with, and people have to take care of it themselves. And this is one way in which people are punished by the community. But um, anyway, the point is that he had found someone who, would, who was willing to do this, to just sort of pick some bozo at random and turn them into a zombie, and he drew the line at this point. He suddenly remembered he was a Harvard scientist, and, and, uh, and he could not actually have pay, some, pay to have somebody drugged and buried in a cemetery for three days and dug up. And, well, how are you feeling, sir? Uh, so the end of the book is a little disappointing that way. Um, how did I get off on all this? Anyway, i got got another, uh, another zine to tell you about. It's called, uh, in fact... Um, this, the next one has an article on Umbanda, which is, um, a Brazilian, another Brazilian variation on, uh, on the Yoruba religion. It's a very informative and interesting little article. The magazine is called Ganymede, a a male spirituality publication. It's mostly about various kinds of, of, interfaces between, um, gay culture and occultism and, um, a worldwide spiritual tradition. I find it very interesting, a very interesting zine. This is number, f- number five. It doesn't come out very often. It's from England, and if you want get, to get into it, and I would recommend it very highly for people, for, for people who are interested in either one or especially in both of those subjects, the uh, address is uh, um, Ganymede, 63. Knatchbull Road, K-N-A-T-C-H-B-U-L-L Road, Lochborough Junction, that's L-O-U-G-H-B-O-R-O-U-G-H, Junction, Camberwell, London, S-E-5-9-Q-R. And again, uh, the editor I know is... uh, particularly interested in receiving interesting stuff in trade if he can rather than just a, a subscription. He'll, uh, if you write him a letter and tell him about yourself and so forth, you'll almost certainly get into a correspondent-type relationship. And uh, he also advertises most of the other zines in England which are dealing with what you might call far-out occultism of, uh, of various sorts. And um there is even, shall I mention this? There is, in fact, a drawing in this issue by Sidney Smith, our engineer, without credit. So we're going to write to uh, the editor and complain about that. But that's what happens when you don't sign your drawings, Sidney. <laughs> oh, you did. All right. So. Oops. And one's, one's past always crops up when you least expect it. <laughs> right. Anyway, we shall, we shall write to Mr. Waters, who is the, uh, the editor, and have a word with him about that. Um, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff in this issue, in particular there's some good art by other people. And if you know anything about this this world, I just mentioned that almost every issue has something by Ralph Chubb in it. I won't bother to tell you who Ralph Chubb is, but if you know, if you even know who he is, then I assume that you're the kind of person who will immediately want to run out and get hold of this magazine. Uh, let's see now, just run, uh, moving right along here. I got. I think I might have mentioned this one before, but I'll just mention it again. It's the publication of the group in Brooklyn called Terrifying Hags Ruthlessly Uprooting Self-Hatred, or THRUSH for short. And this is their special Summer of Love, 1987, Girls' Beer Chaos, is what it says on the cover. And uh, it's very funny. Uh, these people, Dave and I both know know these people. They're good friends of ours. Uh, I like to call them post-post-post-post-post-feminist humorists. And, uh, if you want to get in touch with, uh, with them, um, you can write to Thrush at 151 First Avenue, number 62, NYC, 1003. I really do recommend it. There's some hilarious stuff in here. Their idea is that we haven't had a summer of love for a long time, and it's about time in a nutshell. Uh... I would also like to give a plug to another correspondent friend of mine who's an artist in Chicago who doesn't do a zine himself, but has, he's uh, like me, he's very interested in the subject of chaos. And today I received from him uh, an article on um, an, uh, an actual whole photocopy, photocopy of a book called The Beauty of Fractals. I don't know if, if, you're, if you know what a fractal is, and it's extremely difficult to explain on radio but it's a kind of math- mathematics which gives rise to very interesting and chaotic patterns. And uh, my friend who sent me this, what he's an artist primarily, and one of the things he does is makes exquisite marbled paper. Um, I, if you, I don't know if you know what that means. It's, uh, you've probably seen it without necessarily knowing the term. It's uh, pa- paper with swirling colors in, a kind of, in, in various random sorts of designs. You often see it as end papers in, in books from the 19th and early 20th century. You see a lot of it from Turkey and Persia because that's where it was invented. And um, my friend uh, James Coneline, K O E H uh, N L I N E, makes this stuff. He makes, uh, makes oh, so it. In, he's the guy. Oh,
0: I didn't I've I've met James. I didn't know that he was the yeah, one. Yeah, he came who to New York the, mm-hmm, last yeah. uh, last holiday. I didn't week. know he was the one who did the marble. Paper. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. It's exquisite stuff. Of course,
1: I can't convince you of that over the radio, but if you if you know what marbled paper is and you like it, it might be worth your while getting in touch with him because he does greeting cards and various other kinds of things. Every one unique and handmade. And his address is the Axe Street Arena, A X E, Axe Street Arena 2778. North Milwaukee Avenue, Chicago 60647. Right now he's uh, working on a couple of projects that I'm, uh, I'm involved in, including a, a Bolo Bolo International Art Show. Bolo Bolo is a book that was published by uh, the Semitext-related uh, Foreign Agents series, and it's a, a book by a, a European anarchist who calls himself P.M., and uh, it's a delightful kind of semi-science fiction, semi-utopian, semi-serious uh, projection into the future of a world in which everyone could live in their own little bolo, as he calls them. And uh, it's not quite the same thing as a commune. It's bigger than a commune because every bolo should be at least uh, p- at least almost self-sufficient.
0: More, f- more fun, I think, also more and fun. It than should a be commune. more
1: more fun than a commune too. And they have themes too, right? yeah for i mean you could have either a specialty of special interest bolos or you could have sort of general just life bolos and uh, it's a delightful book and what what uh james wants uh, james coneline wants people to international male artists to participate in this by reading the book and then doing some artwork to express what their favorite bolo would be and uh He's also deeply involved in the Antarctic Astral Convention. He's already sent us some. He must have been time-traveling forward to the party because he's already sent us a whole lot of material from for the Antarctic Astral Convention. Um, gee, I didn't get a whole lot of zines this week, so I don't have a lot of that to talk about. I think what we'll do now is finish the short story that I started last week, and I hope that won't be a big bore for people who weren't with us last week, but the people who were with us will undoubtedly want to hear at least the last page of the story. So, um, and afterwards we may have a few things to say about Gnosticism. So anyway, let's just finish the story. Um, I had gotten to the end of the, uh, text itself, the the hyperborean fragments themselves, of which there are eight, and I'd read the last commentary and I was just, just about to start the, um, Conclusion. When we ran out of time last week, so before we get before we do anything else, let's finish that up. Excuse me, you guys who are here in the studio. If this uh, would take a little while, having at last discovered the intention of the Hyperborean fragments, at least to our own satisfaction, we can now ask again and perhaps answer certain questions. Are the fragments a Gnostic forgery? No. Zerling, the author means to mislead us on this point not once but twice. Even if we detect the hand of the 19th century forger, we might still believe that we are reading a forgery of a Gnostic forgery. But in fact, the Gnostic clues in the fragments are simply red herrings. Zerling wants to create here what can only be called a counter-myth to all of Western civilization. He dips into Gnosticism, Bible studies, philology, archeology, span mythology, comparative religion, Sufism, Hermeticism, alchemy, and philosophy to attain his goal. But his goal is contained in none of these. Who was Zerling? Who wrote the fragments? 1888 was something of an anus mirabilis for Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche. He wrote and published the Wagner case, wrote Re- Revaluation of All Values and Twilight of the Idols, The Antichrist, and Eki Homo, Nietzsche contro Wagner, and the Dithyrambs of Dionysus. In the last quarter of the year, he fell victim to a delusive improvement in his health, followed by a morbid euphoria, which led to his collapse into, in, in, into insanity and his tragic last letters on January 3rd, 1889, in Turin. The Antichrist opens with the words quoted at the head of this article, in which Nietzsche greets his readers as fellow Hyperboreans. In some respects, the Hyperborean fragments might be read as a commentary on these few lines from Nietzsche's devastating and final attack on Christianity. Veiled commentary, even ironic commentary, impossible to prove, but an intriguing coincidence since the Festschrift, which contained the Hyperborean fragments, also appeared in 1888. Nietzsche himself, of course, is certainly not our author. For one thing, the fragments makes no mention of Dionysus or the myth of eternal return, two Nietzschean obsessions he would surely have trotted out if he were to undertake such a hoax. Of course, Nietzsche was a brilliant classical classical philologist. He could have done it, but it was not his style, and that settles the matter. What about some disciple or ex-student of Nietzsche from his professorial days at Bonn, Leipzig, or Basel? At last, we hit on something that might prove to be pay dirt. One of the other contributors to the Festschrift was Johannes Metz, 1847 to 1902, an almost exact contemporary of Nietzsche's, who attended Leipzig one year behind him and studied philosophy there. They could have met in 1865 or 66. So far, we have no evidence that they did, then or ever. Metz wrote very little, and his interest in Apocrypha resulted in only one or two essays, of which we have seen only Jesus as murderer and magician in the Infancy Gospels, which, as you'll recall, was also in the Festschrift. In 1888, he was living and lecturing in Munich on Hegelian philosophy, and he published a few reviews on studies of Feuerbach, Stirner, and other left Hegelian luminaries. No mention anywhere in this work of Nietzsche, who was distinctly not a Hegelian, Stirner and Nietzsche, however, were later reconciled by the individualist anarchists, who stood opposed to both Marxian and Bakuninist strains of the late 19th century social revolution. Metz, if indeed he is our author, might have been attempting some such synthesis, for certainly the fragments contains a sort of mythic superstructure for individualist philosophy. Jesus as murderer, according to Karl, who read it over carefully at our request after we had begun to suspect Metz, demonstrates what might be considered a very dry, almost invisible sense of humor or irony. The subject matter is, after all, somewhat blasphemous, and Metz treats it, Carl says, utterly deadpan, without emotion, as if, uh, quote, as if discussing the weather in ancient Israel, unquote. The infancy gospels, which depict the child Jesus as a dangerous exorcist-style imp of the perverse, might well have appealed to a secret devotee of chaos. Carl has so far been unable to locate Metz's papers. He says he gets the feeling Metz was too insignificant for anyone to think of saving his letters or endowing an archive. No luck tracing family. The man is almost as elusive as Zerling. Again, it is probably too late to track down our mysterious mytho-poet or penetrate behind his multiple masks of scholarship and confidence trickery. Even if we had evidence against Metz, rather than only unfounded suspicions, what then would we know of his motivation, his real sources? The question ultimately must be discarded as irrelevant or at least relatively uninteresting. The text is worth saving, even with the trouble of unburying it from beneath the tortuous and heavy-handed scholarly whimsy of its own creator. If there were a purpose to this rather Borgesian amusement, we could only sum it up by finishing our opening quotation from Nietzsche. We, Hyperboreans, have discovered happiness. We know the road. We have found the exit out of the whole millennia of labyrinth. Who else has found it? So that is the end of my article from New Pathways into Science Fiction and Fantasy. Which I, uh, as I say, despite, uh, aside from the fact that they publish my material, I would recommend them very highly as a, a semi prozine which means that they pay about twenty bucks for an article, uh, but that's you know something. It's a uh, dinner anyway, and their uh, their address, in case you're interested in in getting in touch with them or subscribing, or submitting material or whatever, is uh, box eight six three nine nine four. Plano, P L A N O, Texas, seven five zero eight six three nine nine four. Now, last week, Sydney asked me if this was a, a or if there was any truth to this story at all, or whether it was a complete hoax, and I had to fess up and admit that uh, it's actually what we're dealing with here is not third degree hoaxing, as I said in the article, but actual fourth degree hoaxing. Because I made the whole thing up out of whole cloth, there is there are no hyperborean fragments, never were. Um, and I I wrote the thing as a kind of, uh, I was actually hoping to to be able to uh, sell it to an actual scholarly journal and get it published by some careless editor who didn't who uh, was you know too dumb to check up on strung out, <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, actually get away with it as a hoax, but since I had to end up publishing it in a science fiction magazine, I doubt that anyone actually uh, was taken in by it. I love literary hoaxes. uh, I've been involved in more than one. And uh, what I meant to do with this hoax was not just uh, a very important vehicle for the revival of interest in Gnostic dualism in our society especially thanks to the late, great Philip K. Dick. And believe me, no one could have more respect for P.K. Dick as a writer than me. I I discovered him when I was in high school, uh, shortly after he published Man in the High Castle, which uh, brought him to the attention of the science fiction reading public on a broad scale because he won the, uh, was it the Hugo or the Nebula or both for that book? I don't recall. Anyway, he won a major award or two. And uh, I've always been a P.K. Dick fan, and I absolutely adore his final three or four books where he got totally carried away by Gnostic dualism. Valis is one, The Divine Invasion, and then uh, Radio Free Albemuth has just come out, which was an earlier, uh, uh, not published during his lifetime, earlier version of Valis. And uh, I, I I find his work absolutely wonderful and amazing, but I also happen to disagree with it on, on a philosophical basis very violently. Um, I really am sorry that, that P.K. Dick died before I began publishing my own science fiction and my own polemical work on Gnostic dualism because I feel that he would have been someone that I could have had a battle, uh, a literary battle with, and that would would have only made us like each other instead of dislike each other. I don't know, I may be wrong in that, in that intuition. But I don't get the impression he was the kind of person who would have hated me just because I disagree with him. I think he was a lot bigger than that. I also believe, and um, a lot of the material that's been published by people like Paul Williams and so forth after um, Dick's death, I also believe that Dick himself was quite serious, that he presented this stuff as fiction, but a lot of it was based on experiences that he had had that he believed to be authentic and real. He really did believe that he had been contacted by a vast extraterrestrial intelligence system of some sort that beamed down messages, and which got him into a lot of trouble in various ways. Uh, and um, that since the... That, well, there's a, there's a common idea in Gnosticism that even... that because the material world is so corrupt and full of death, that even the words of the of of the, the word you know the word from the pleroma the word from on high in reaching us through our psychic atmosphere so to speak becomes diffracted uh, sometimes beyond recognition and turns into nonsense this is a very intriguing idea that that nonsense could be a form of revelation if you were if you were keen enough to be able to decode or let's say scrape away the uh, the the element of, of verbal and intellectual confusion which is a result of our own imperfect state of receiving the revelation. And uh, since the messages that, that Dick was getting from Vallis, which is what he called the entity that he thought he was in touch with, were in fact very confusing and, sel- and self-contradictory, the only thing he could do with it, and after all he was a professional uh, fiction writer, was to present it as fiction. But he meant it very seriously, and the result of this is that a lot of other people who have read the books have come to develop an interest in Gnosticism through the work of P.K. Dick rather than through any kind of scholarship or New Age stuff. Now, until the 20th century, Gnosticism was known only in the writings of its enemies, that is to say, Orthodox Christians, you know, uh, Inquisition-type people who... uh, who won. I mean, th- there was a battle in the first few centuries of Christianity to see whether it would be Roman Catholicism or Gnosticism that would win out and become Christianity. And Catholicism won and Gnosticism lost. And as a result, um, over the centuries, up until the 13th century, when the Cathars were wiped out by the Inquisition and by the French king, it was a constant battle to just suppress Gnosticism and uh, destroy it, and, and this battle was finally won. From the 13th century through the 19th century, there was no organized Gnosticism in the West. There are some people who think that it may, that Manichaeism may have survived in China, uh, central, central Turkmen, Turkestan, and uh, out of the way places, the Gobi Desert, even up into the 17th or 18th century. But even if we accept that, then there's still a hiatus there of two or 300 years when there was, as far as I know, no organized transmission of Gnostic dualism in the world. Then, in the 20th century, first of all, thanks to the works of some of the Golden Dawn people, especially Arthur Waite, uh, who began uh, uncovering everything he could of the fragmentary remains, most of them embedded in the works of the Christian anti-heretic writers, Uh, and then... um, little by little manuscripts, hordes of uh, treasure troves of manuscripts began to turn up. James has already discussed this with you all at some length, so I won't go into the detailed history, but it ended in, I believe, 1945 with the last major cache of manuscripts at uh, the Nag Hammadi, so-called Nag Hammadi Library, which was... uh, buried in a cemetery somewhere, I guess, when these Gnostic monks had to flee the scene. They left their books behind, buried either for themselves if they planned to come back, or for posterity, and it worked. We're posterity and we got them, and they've all, I think they've pretty much all been translated and published now. Uh, Jung was one of the first people to get uh, interested in this material. Um, It's had a lot of attention from extremely good scholars and intelligent philosophers and so forth and so on. And I would say that we're now in a position where if you read everything that there is to be read on the subject, you can really understand what Gnosticism was and what it was about. And now we have, as I, as I said a couple of weeks ago, we have we have uh, all over Europe and, and now in America, Gnostic revivalist churches, such as the Ecclesia Gnostica out in California, and uh, all sorts of neo Templar groups and neo Cathar groups and Gnostic Orthodox churches and so forth, especially in France, they seem to go in for this in a big way. And uh, it's really beginning to look as if Gnosticism is coming into fashion in the 20th century. And there are reasons why this should be so, I believe. There are historical reasons why this makes good sense and why it makes sense that a man like P.K. Dick should have appeared when he appeared, gotten hold of the Nag Hammadi material. I don't really know whether he was such a great scholar. I doubt, like most of us fiction writers, he was probably the kind of guy who likes, you know, reads a couple of paperback books and then goes off and starts fantasizing. I know that's how I am, so I presume that's how he, how, uh, how he is or was. But, anyway, it doesn't matter that he wasn't a scholar because he was a genius, and he intuitively understood the material, and in my estimation, he presented it correctly. And uh, especially in Vallis. and interestingly enough, one of his earlier books, Ubik, which I consider to be maybe the finest science fiction novel ever written, and also certainly the most upsetting, disturbing, and hateful, one of absolutely one of the most hateful books ever written. Ubik is hilariously funny. It's brilliantly written. Absolutely riveting. You uh, cannot put it down, and at the end of it, you feel like vomiting. It's uh, it's a vision of the universe as as corruption. It's a, a, a vision of material reality as corrosion, waste, fungoid, gray, falling apart. Blech! And uh, it's extremely convincing. And after all, this is uh, this is a trend in the modern world. Uh, you might call it nihilism, if you like, or you might just call it depressed pessimism or the anti-life movement or what have you, the whole idea that the world is coming to an end and who cares anyway. Um, I associate this feeling, which, after all, you can pick up from just about any performance artist on the Lower East Side if you feel like it, or, in fact, even from a lot of the zine world which I praise and which I'm involved in, there's a lot of what I would call neo-Gnostics around um, people who are not necessarily interested in the religious tradition of Gnosticism but who really do believe that life itself is evil. Um, They're what I call queer for death and um, I don't like any of it. It really upsets me and I I have political reasons for that as well as spiritual reasons. The political reasons would mostly fall into the category of uh, hopelessness does not lead to what I would consider to be a positive active stance vis-a-vis oppression. It uh, leads rather to a sort of caving in uh, to oppression and a feeling of elitism that if you're smart enough to avoid the grunge of the modern world and to concentrate your mind on higher things, then the hell with everybody else. And uh, then, then there's what I, then then there aside from this political aspect, there's what I would call the spiritual aspect, which is really based on the idea that the material universe is wrong that it's a mistake, that the Creator God is an, is an idiot who didn't know what he was doing, and that the real God is an alien who is outside of the material universe altogether, who is unknowable in effect in any in any meaningful sense, and who has left us in the beep to uh, make it on our own, uh, pretty much without any help except for these uh, occasional saviors who come down and usually come to no, no good end and their message gets garbled, as P.K. Dick uh, pictured so beautifully in Valis. And um, salvation is extremely difficult. It's meant only for the pneumatics, the, uh, the pure spiritual types. And even in, even in the case of those people, it is certainly not their physical bodies which are going to be saved. It's only the, the spark of pure spirit that was stolen by the creator God, who is sometimes called Jehovah. Uh, and implanted in these uh, golems or robots of clay which he had produced and had been unable to bring to life so he stole the sparks from uh, from the pleroma from the higher heaven and the whole purpose of Gnosticism is to collect up these sparks of spirit and get them out of the material world and back up into the never-never land of the pleroma where they belong and to leave the material world to just um, be totally evil and to have uh, not even a spark so to speak of of goodness in it that would make it worth saving. Now, I find it, there's, I've been in correspondence with a lot of people who are involved in modern Gnosticism. Some of them are, again, correspondence friends of mine. They're people whose brains I have a great deal of respect for, just as I respect P.K. Dick, people who are intelligent, people who are fun to correspond with, people who write well, et cetera, et cetera, but I simply cannot swallow their position on metaphysics. Um, I think I may have told you already that I consider myself a radical monist in the sense that I believe that matter and spirit are, spirit are absolutely one, not two, but one. Um, I believe in what I, what I call chaos, and, and uh, that's the force which I was fictionalizing here in the Hyper-Borean, Hyperborean fragments. I believe in chaos as essentially continual creation and creativity, I believe in it as joy, as, uh, as freedom from authority, as the ultimate responsibility of the self uh, towards what might be called spiritual perfection, which to me is also physical perfection and involves uh, political freedom, it involves joy, it involves uh, happiness and peace and all those good things from the 60s that uh, we're not supposed to mention anymore, at least not in those terms because it just isn't hip to talk about love and peace. Well, excuse me, Um, I would much rather be considered an aging hippie 60s airhead than than to be thought of as being queer for death on any level whatsoever. So if you want to consider me retro, reactionary, and unhip for that point of view, go right ahead. I don't mind in the least. But I really do believe that my attitude is more, how can I say this? I don't want to sound like a dogmatist here. I don't want to say that I believe that my attitude is true and that theirs is false. It's not that. In fact, I I understand Gnosticism all too well. I understand the psychological horror that lies behind Gnosticism extremely well. I've been attracted to it myself personally and I know what it means. I know the kind of uh, feeling of, of, of salvation beyond all reason beyond all suffering and beyond all horror that uh, Gnostic dualism has held out to people over the centuries. I'm extremely taken with the beauty of certain of the texts, like the Hymn of the Pearl, which James talked to us all about one night, I remember. But I simply cannot swallow this ontology and this metaphysics of uh, the hatred of matter, the hatred of the self, self-disgust, disgust for sexuality, disgust for joy, uh, with joy, disgust with, with life itself as, as something evil. And even though a lot of my correspondents claim that not all Gnosticism was dualist, that some of it was monist, that not all of it was anti-matter or anti-life, that some of it was pro-life. I just don't see the historical evidence. I'm sorry. Uh, in Hermeticism, yes, maybe. In Neoplatonism, certainly. But not in Gnostic dualism. Gnostic dualism is summed up in their ritual called the consolamentum, which as far as I'm concerned was just a form of ritual suicide. It involves uh, when, you f- when you felt that you would reach perfection, you just starved yourself to death. And um, this I've, I've read in Gnosis Magazine, which I was talking about a, a week or so ago, uh, articles by modern Gnostics that completely s- uh, skim over this aspect of Gnostic dualism. Every once in a while, they'll say something about the uh, the, the, mm, the evil material universe or something. But most of it is all goodness and light. And naturally, since the Gnostics were the outgroup, the outcasts, the rebels and so forth, it's very easy to, to paint them in a romantic and exciting way, that, that it, as P.K. Dick did, as the sort of... Um, uh, you know underground heroes or resistance against Christianity which heavens knows needed <laughs> needed people to rebel against it and needed eventually Nietzsche to polish it off uh, so from that point of view again I have respect for the Gnostics in their in their historical development and uh, I have great sympathy for the cathars who were wiped out so cruelly by the Inquisition and by uh, uh, the king of France and the, who was collaborating with the uh, Inquisition and so forth and so on. And I don't want to say that, I, that my stance is the same as that of Irenaeus or the heresographers Harris, of the church who, who, who insisted that all these people be burned at the stake. But all, all I'm saying and what, I'm really, what I was really trying to say in the Hyperborean fragments was that the idea of being disgusted with material existence as a spiritual stance to me is unacceptable. Any, any spirituality which does not include a wholehearted approbation of the physical universe to me is anathema. That's why I like Santeria because uh, they are very practical and down to earth when it comes to helping you uh, find a girlfriend for yourself or make money. Material things, yes, why not? I mean, why should material things, why should material happiness be separated from spiritual happiness? To me this is the worst of all the ghosts in the machine. The worst of all the spooks, the worst of all the historical boondoggles that have made Western civilization what we uh, now know it, Uh, it's Christianity itself, in beating Gnostic dualism once and for all in the 13th century, to my way of thinking, became, in a certain sense, dualistic. For example, the whole idea of chastity of the priesthood was stolen from the Gnostics, the Gnostics were, were, had historically a lot of respect from people because their priests were chaste, uh, did not marry, and at the time in the Mediterranean world there were a lot of people who thought this was proof of great spirituality. And the Christian Church actually adopted this practice, as I understand it, in imitation of the Gnostic dualists. St. Augustine, who uh, is one of the, f- the most important of all thinkers for for Catholic dogma and doctrine was himself a Manichaean before he converted to Catholicism. And if you've ever read any of his work, you know how how Manichaean he remained, even as a Catholic, how anti-life, how anti-flesh, how anti-sexual, anti-woman. By the way, you'll find a lot of people who think that Gnosticism was somehow kind of proto-feminism. This attitude was propounded by... Oh, what is her name a very good scholar who wrote a wonderful book. It was uh, serialized in the New York Review of Books before it came out as a book. Oh, rats. Well, it'll, it'll, it'll come to me. Um, a very intriguing book, but uh, I was not convinced by her her depiction of Gnostic dualism as somehow much more feminist than Catholicism. I think that women might have had more freedom in, Gnostic, in the Gnostic uh, tradition simply because sexuality itself was no longer considered to be irrelevant. Sexuality was something that the true spiritual pneumatic Gnostic uh, perfectus would leave behind, along with every other aspect of fleshliness. So the fact that the Gnostics had female bishops, to me, is not proof that we should, all, that we should go around celebrating them as, uh, as, as proto-feminist heroes or heroines. I can't agree with that attitude either. Anyway, um, I could... Uh, I could go on for a long time foaming at the mouth about Gnostic dualism. I used to, uh, when James was doing the show and I was being myself a a faithful listener, every time he got off on one of those uh, things from the uh, Nag Hammadi Library or from the other Bible, those, really, I mean, as horror stories, they're wonderful. And this, I think, is why so many science fiction writers are in love with Gnosticism. It's, when you come right down to it, uh, a cosmic battle, unending cosmic battle between good and evil is just what fiction d- deals best with the idea that all is one is not a very dynamic idea it's not an idea which gives rise to fun plots with lots of villains and and, and uh, wonderful tentacled monsters in the Lovecraftian style um, the fact that that uh, the idea that, that matter is good and that life is good and that it's only our forgetfulness and imperfection uh, the the imperfections of our consciousness, rather than any cosmic curse or original sin that makes life wretched and and full of horror and suffering. This idea in itself is not nearly as exciting as an idea for good novels and short stories as the gnostic gnostic uh, uh, cosmos, which is just pululating with wonderful demons. I mean, it's an endless joy for your uh, your basic Stephen King fan. And uh, I myself. I guess you could say I wanted to rip off this aspect of Gnosticism in my story, and use this kind of exciting aspect of Gnosticism, to, uh, as the as the Situationist said, uh, to detourn Gnosticism itself. In other words, to use Gnosticism against itself. And uh, so, anyway, that is that's my excuse for this story, and I hope I hope at least a few of you enjoyed it. And. I think, even though it's a little earlier than we usually do it, I want to go into our musical break now because I want to play... Hopefully, I'm going to play a whole side of this record. I don't know. It, conceivably, we may hate it. I don't know, in, in which case, I might interrupt it and turn it off. But uh, where's the alb- where did the album cover get to? Thanks. This record... I've been reading about this record for years, and I don't really know whether it finally came out or whether it's been out all along, and I, I just didn't know it. It's called... Uh, Jajuka, the master musicians of Jajuka, the primal energy that is the music and ritual of Jajuka, Morocco. And uh, this is, I presume, some sort of folkloristic Moroccan Sufi music. The interesting thing about this record is that it was put together by Brian Geisen and Brian Jones. Now, Brian Geisen, if you don't know, was uh, sort of William Burroughs' rabbi if you've ever read any, any Brian Geisen, it reads like, to my way of thinking, it, you'd, you'd think that Geisen was imitating Burroughs because, in fact, he was not as good a writer. He recently passed away, RIP. He was not as good a writer as Burroughs, but, in fact, it's the other way around. Burroughs imitated Geisen. Burroughs learned a hell of a lot from Geisen. Geisen was your ultra, ultra hip beatnik who was like, you know, your beatnik's beatnik. And uh, he lived in Morocco for a long, long time, and he heard this music, and I remember I read somewhere in Gysen's work that it struck this amazing chord in his soul, and he knew that he had discovered his music to the extent that he actually decided to stay in Morocco and open a restaurant in Tangiers so that this, these villagers could come and play music so that he could hear it every day. And while he was running this restaurant, Brian Jones, the late Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, visited him, heard this music, and he also... Uh, fell in love with it and I gather, as I understand the story Brian Jones put up the money to make this recording and then all sorts of strange things happened I'm not exactly sure what I guess people falling out with each other over over something uh, uh, Brian Geison was not exactly clear in the article that I read and of course Brian Jones is no longer around to ask and I think that production of this record was held up for quite a while as a result of all that uh, brouhaha um, the copyright is 1974. I really don't know whether this record has been out that long or not. It's produced by Adelphi Records. In, uh, the label is Adelphi, or Adelphi. And uh, I haven't heard it, and I don't know whether we're going to like it or not. Uh, if we do, we'll hear a whole side, and if we don't, we'll see what happens. So let's spin it. I'm not going to be اللَّهُ أَمِينَ. Uh, about 2.30 and this is Primary Sources and I'm Peter Lamborn Wilson and you have been listening to Jajuka the master musicians of Jajuka and of course stupid me I should have realized there were, there were liner notes inside the album and I could have told you a great deal more than I uh, did if I had only uh, read it ahead of time uh, I will not read all the notes although it looks like great stuff but I'll just read one column of it anyway so to give you an idea of what, you, what you've been hearing and there's a long quote here from Brian Geyson, which I'm sure will be uh, interesting. Djadjouka, a small village in the foothills of the Reef Mountains of northern Morocco, where great Pan is still honored. Transcending time, space, and religion, traveling from ancient Egypt through numerous cultures, wearing various names, he survives in Djadjouka not only as a myth, but as reality in the master musicians, the pipes of Pan. With changes in the world as they are, a number of soul-seekers from the West have tapped into the primal energy that, that is the music and ritual of Jajuca. Brian Geison, painter, writer, metaphysician, and the first contemporary foreigner to be associated with the village, in turn, brought William Burroughs and later Dr. Timothy Leary, yay, and Brian Jones. The following notes are from Jajuka Up the Mountain, by Robert Palmer, published in Rolling Stone. Robert, a journalist and musician, plays clarinet with Ornette Coleman on an album recently recorded with the master musicians in Jajuka, so they're still at it. The legend of Jajuka was recounted by Hamri, and established, a, an established Moroccan painter and native of the village. The remains of Saint Sidi Hamid, Hamid Sherak, who introduced Islam to the region sometime around the year 800, gave Jajuka a moral authority unquestioned until recently by the people of the neighboring villages. This authority is expressed and sustained by Jujuka's master musicians, the sons of sons of musicians, who play to exorcise the illness of pilgrims, to reaffirm the identity of villagers and visitors at festival and feast times, and to entertain and instruct their listeners and themselves, wafting their time-seasoned melodies and handed-down rhythms out across the Jebel on clouds of kief smoke. All right. Um, a lot of these Moroccan uh, folkloristic Sufi uh, orders, by the way, have something very similar to the uh, santeria business we were talking about earlier in that various diseases are thought of are explained as, ki- as, as possession of various sorts and um, that different rhythms apply to different diseases and that uh, specific drum rhythms or specific tunes can cure specific psychological problems or psychosomatic problems which is of course also uh, the basic idea behind Tarantella in the old um, Italian possession cult, which has its own music. Maybe we can try to find some Tarantella music sometime to play for you. And just before we leave the subject, I'll read this quote from Brian musicians, The musicians have papers from the Alawite sultans who came to power about the same time as Louis XIV in France and Charles II in England the text of these, written by a royal chamberlain or official scribe, addresses them with extraordinary respect and acknowledges that they have rights over the sultan. The right to play him to bed, to play him to the mosque on Fridays, rights for a group to live in the palace, and so forth. Two musicians who are still alive remember being at the court of the sultan Moulay Hafid, who was sultan in Marrakesh when his brother was sultan in Fez. This all broke up with the French occupation in 1912. A pirate called Rasuli, who set himself up as a would-be sultan, treated the musicians of Jajuka royally while he lasted. It was very good for his publicity to have them. In the 20s he paid them a hundred dollars a month apiece, which was a huge sum of money in those days. But then Rasuli was busted by the Spaniards. The Spaniards looked after these things in some ways better than the French did. They had much more understanding of it <clears throat> because it's so mixed up with their own music, their own cultural history. What the music is, in fact, is the popularization of the classical music that was written around the 9th, 10th century in Andalusia, court music at the courts of Cordova and Seville. Around 1942, there was a big expulsion of the Moors from southern Spain, and a great many of those people settled back in the hills at that time. I wonder, 1942? Must, he must mean 1492. That has got to be a misprint. Uh, the Spaniards were fairly good to those up in Jajuca, They were allowed to collect a tithe on all of the neighboring villages who acknowledged the moral authority of the saint buried in Jujuka. They would simply travel around to the fields at harvest time and people would give them a measure of whatever it was they were harvesting. (laughs) Now the political development of the music in all countries has been that as soon as a nationalist revolution is successful, they immediately want to put down their own music to get out of their own clothes and get into Levi's. Um, Parenthetically, I would say that that was... uh, I can uh, vouch for that uh, statement in terms of Iran, India, and Afghanistan, but uh, Brian Geisen couldn't have known that uh, so-called orthodox Islamic regimes such as that of the Ayatollahs are even worse for traditional music than the westernizing, modernizing types who at least are interested in preservation. Uh, Going back to the text... Here, at the moment of independence in 1956, there were enormous parades with the entire population streaming through the streets for several weeks on end. They started huge samba lines shouting, the samba and rumba are the national music of New Morocco. All musicians were going to be settled down and taught useful handicrafts. Music came back because of the tourist boom, but still, at harvest time, the musicians from Jajuca had fights with people who stoned them when they came to the fields for their tithe. Every one of the musicians is taxed for his instrument, something like $6 a year, and his total yearly income isn't more than $10 in cash. Now they have a place to hang out and meet regularly. I presume he was talking about his restaurant. And they have a group of young kids who come and learn all the drumming rhythms. So something is still going on. Still, it's a terrible scramble. And uh, that, in my limited experience of Moroccan music, would still pretty much describe the situation. I did hear some good... uh, Moroccan music in Morocco, mostly in the Andalusian mode, with a much larger group than we've heard here, much more classical, and uh, perhaps, I suppose you could say, not as authentic. Well, I enjoyed that a great deal, and I might even eventually get around to playing the other side of the record for us. But we have about an hour left, and I thought uh, rather than bend your ear live tonight, I would um, use a bit of tape that I produced about a year ago, with a good friend named uh, Michael Bacon, who uh, was at that time working for a radio station in Maine and played this tape up there. It's never been aired in New York. It's based on a, on a lecture, a series of lectures that I gave. And uh, I guess you can uh, accuse me of now getting totally off the subject of spirituality because this interview, which we did, is not on any spiritual subject, but is instead on the subject of pirate utopias, uh, a historical subject, which, uh, interests me a great deal. And I won't bother to explain anything because I presume, as I recall, this interview should be totally self-explanatory. So we'll see if we can fit the whole thing in, or if we could at least reach a logical stopping point at 3.30. And, um, uh, well, uh, I don't think I'm going to take any phone calls this week. I'll give you a chance to maybe to get back at me next week if you, uh, feel that I'm not following the, uh, the strict Jamesian line here, but uh, anyway, uh, as long as he doesn't find out about it, we can just uh, enjoy ourselves. So let's, uh, let's listen to this tape.
0: Peter, tell me a little bit about yourself before we start talking about our topic, which is pirate utopias. Um, well, if I do tell you a little bit about myself, I'll just run myself down as a pirateologist, because that's not what I am by profession. Um, most of my publishing has been uh, in the field of Persian studies I lived in Iran for a number of years Um, other fields of uh, publishing that I've uh, engaged in what I guess you would call um, art history uh, comparative mysticism and uh, also um, anarchist philosophy Um, I did a uh, I've done a couple of coffee table books, one on angels and one on Persian carpets. I've done uh, a lot of traveling, especially in the East, Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And um, at present, I'm uh, living in New York and being a freelance writer, for what that's worth. Mm